0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Good evening, church. Good to see you. So good to see you. Uh, My name is Drew. I'm the high school pastor, and I am teaching tonight. We are going to be in Mark 12. And uh, it's my privilege and honor to be leading our study tonight. I know that you guys are going to get a lot out of it because God has promised me to speak through me. And so I'm really excited. But to kick our service off, I actually want to do something a little bit different, a little bit unique. And actually, you guys are going to be really glad you came. For those of you watching online, you're going to be really glad that you are because I want to welcome up my dear friend, Piper Barella. Would you guys give her a round of applause? She's going to come up and join us. I want to celebrate something that happened recently and um, uh, Piper is a big part of that and so why don't you kick us off kind of tell us what the beginning of this whole story is.
1: Um, So basically for a while now I've just been praying that um, you know God would just like reveal himself to me and just give me something that um, I could go out and share with people. Um, I didn't really know what that looked like. I didn't really have any expectations um, but Something that's been on my heart is, like, I've been seeing all these, like, healings and just, like, these miracles that God has been doing, like, all around me, Um, and I've never really experienced that. I've never really been in the room when it happens, but um, for a while now, I've just been longing to kind of just, like, see it happen, like, right in front of me. Um, and little did I know what God had in store for me, so.
0: Yes, so, so amazing. She's a senior at Maranatha Christian School, and uh, so she comes and hangs out with us in our office every now and again, sometimes to pitch in, sometimes just to shoot the breeze, and we love that. Um, this time, I was kind of on my way out of the office, I'd already packed my stuff up, and I saw Piper in there, so I went to say hi. And she just kind of said like, well, what's been going on in her life is she's been struggling with like some knee pain, um, possibly torn meniscus or something like that. For some weeks now, uh, lost like Range of mobility, range of motion, a little bit, some strength, and then it hurt like going up and downstairs, just making like clicking noises and stuff. So, you know, I, I hate to admit that like sometimes my faith is not as strong, maybe as as I would like it to be. But it was kind of those moments where I'm like, should we pray? Should we not pray? I'm like, let's do it. You know, I just felt like let's do it. Let's just pray for it and see what happens. You know, um, and so. You know Piper sitting there i was like hey can i put my hand on your knee like look, can we pray for you and she's like yeah sure that'd be awesome and as we we're praying something kind of weird happened what what did you feel
1: um so kind of mid-prayer i like felt something pop in my knee um and the only way i can explain it is it literally felt like someone like someone's hand like clicked something back into my knee like it went back into place
0: super weird because I felt the same thing in my hand like I felt it underneath my hand right in her knee I felt something pop and honestly I figured that she was like playing with her pants seam like some of you guys can even do this if you're wearing jeans like just slip your nail off of the seam like onto the rest of your leg and like there's that little popping sensation and I thought oh she's just she's probably distracted or something, you know, she's like playing around while we're praying. And uh, as Olivia continued to pray, I just, you know, kind of stored that away. And we finished praying, kind of grabbed my stuff. I was like, cool, have a great day. But before I go, can I just ask you something like, did you, were you playing with your pants while you were praying? Were you doing something? And she's like,
1: No, I was not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She's like, no, you felt that? I was like, yeah, I felt that. I figured you were playing. She's like, no, I figured you did that. And it turned out neither one of us had done anything. So we kind of like stored it away in our hearts and we're like, okay, maybe God just did something miraculous. Let's kind of just see how it goes and let me know. I told her, uh, let me know the next time you go up some stairs, funny little test, but that was one of the things that would come up is there'd be pain and clicking when she'd go upstairs. So I go outside and I'm talking to some guys and her and Olivia come out, and they're about to go up the flight of stairs that lead into our student building. And uh, Olivia turns to me, and she's like, we're about to go up some stairs. And, and the guys standing around me are like, okay, <laughs> enjoy, I guess. And I was kind of watching them out of the corner of my eye and halfway up, Piper and Olivia stopped because what did you feel?
1: I felt no pain and there was no clicking or popping um, at all in my knee.
0: So crazy. So she takes up to the top of the stairs and bounds down the other side of the stairs. She's like running around and jumping. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And she's like, no pain. And she's like standing next to me. She's like, look, look, look. And she's like doing squats and jumping and stuff. And it's just such a cool moment where I think you're praying a bold prayer. Like, you're not just praying like, God, you know, can you provide for me or can you protect me? you're You're praying for a miracle. You're praying that he would break the laws of nature and do something miraculous. And that's what he did.
1: He did.
0: Yeah, so cool. Can you guys just give God some glory because of what he did in Piper? So cool. Thank you so, Thank you so much. Wow. Is that a cool way to bring in a message? Come on, let's go. All right, Mark 12. Let's get into it. I love, love God and what he's able to do and accomplish. So, so cool. Mark 12. Well, a couple weeks ago, last week we had Jonathan Kahn come and join us, but two weeks ago, uh, Danny um, brought us through a, a tense conversation between Jesus and some religious authorities nearby, and that conversation revolved around one question um, By whose power or authority are you doing these things? Just before that conversation, what we see is that Jesus flipped the money tables. Uh, where they exchanged currency and they had set up all these booths in the court of the Gentiles and so what ended up happening was it was difficult for the Gentiles to worship because of all this business that was going on around them all of the hustle and bustle that was going on around and in addition they were charging exorbitant prices to, charge the, or to exchange this currency so not only were they making it harder for the Gentiles to worship but they are also making it harder for people to purchase sacrifices and worship God themselves and so incensed Jesus flips these tables and drives them out. He kind of cleanses the temple, in a sense. And so they come to him, and they're like, "What? by whose authority are you doing all of this stuff? And what drives that question is one important question underneath. And it's an important question that we should all be asking, whether you've been walking with the Lord for decades, or if you're sitting here tonight still unsure about why you're here The question should be on all of our minds on a daily basis, and the question simply is this Who is Jesus? Who does he think he is? And if he's claiming to be God, is he right? Well, that question he answers in two ways. One is the conversation that Danny went through just a couple weeks ago, and the second is the parable that he's about to teach that's going to be our passage for tonight. So, Mark 12. One through twelve. We're gonna read through the whole thing. If you don't have a um, a text in front of you or anything like that, we're gonna have the words up on the screen. Um, but if you don't own a Bible or if you you have one, it's all tattered and uh, or if it's like a Precious Moments Bible, you know that you've had <laughs> since you're a child or something like that. It's one of my favorite things to do is buy Bibles for people. We in fact stock Bibles in the high school room because I just love to give Bibles away. I think it's one of the most important physical possessions that you can have on a regular basis. And so if you don't have one, I just love to. you like that. Um, And with that all being said, we should pray. And then we'll get into our text. God, you are so amazing. Thank you for those banger songs that were so good that reminded us of who you are and what you came to do and the glory that is due to you. Thank you for the hearts that were lit on fire in this room. And thank you, God, that you didn't just bring us to another Wednesday night service, but you brought us to meet with you. That's what we're here to do. Whether we knew it coming to this room or not, whether we knew it when we turned on the the live feed or not, we came to meet with you in our living rooms or here at the church in your living room. So God, would you bless us by richly dwelling among your people? Would you send your Holy Spirit so as to move powerfully in the hearts of men that we might find ourselves coming alive for the first time or coming back to the life that we walked away from or... uh, Sending our joy and our life soaring to new heights. You can do all of these things and even more. Um, so we trust in you to do them. We count on you to do them. You've promised to. It's in your character. It's within your power. Uh, and so we're excited to see. We're anticipating that you show up, that you teach, that you lead, and that you transform. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Let's do it. Okay. Mark 12, 1 through 12. You got me on the switchboards? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Blake. It's my buddy Blake back there. Okay. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to him. Oops, excuse me. He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Not a great start. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. So he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So what will the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes and they were seeking to arrest him. Now referring back to the religious leaders. They were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now, before we get deeply into interpreting this parable, I think it's important for us to orient us towards parables. Parables are a unique genre amongst all of literature, certainly uh, in the biblical narrative as well. And so um, I think it'd be helpful to picture parables on a spectrum. Now, I think this is on some of your guys' note sheets that you guys got handed out, Um, and it should be on a slide here. I place parables on a spectrum. At one extreme, the parable is very abstract. So the details of the parable um, kind of more vaguely or generally refer to uh, correlating realities. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you have parables or stories that are more literal. And so the details of the story correlate very specifically uh, to either dynamics in reality or real people and real events. What we have here is a very literal parable. Um, We can tell that by the way that they interpret um, uh, it in verse 12. The religious leaders seek to arrest him because they perceived that the parable was about them, it was coming against them. Um, this parable, maybe we could compare it to like the parable of the persistent widow. Um, it's a parable that uh, very briefly describes two people, a wicked judge and a persistent widow. And the dynamic between them is that though the judge is wicked, unjust, and not seeking righteousness, the widow's persistence wins his will. Now, that one always tripped me up because I thought the judge was supposed to describe God. But God isn't wicked. He's not unjust. And so I didn't really know how to interpret that until I plopped it on this spectrum. Now, with a parable like that, not everything has a direct correlation to something else. Now, I think God is the judge, and it kind of talks about that after the parable, but certainly he's not wicked, and certainly he's not unjust. That parable simply is about one dynamic alone, persistence in prayer. Like Pastor Ray would always say, push, pray until something happens. So be persistent in prayer. This one, on the other hand, Every bit of it points to a literal reality or a specific entity, and we can get that not only from the religious leaders' interpretation of the passage, their perception of it, but also um, we have an interpretive key that kind of unlocks Uh, The various parts of this parable. We find that interpretive key in Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. Now this text isn't on the screen. I'm going to read it to you and in doing so I'm going to emphasize the parts of it that I think should really stand out to us. So incline your ear. Let me sing for my beloved my longs my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. Is this some of this sounding familiar, right? This is our key. Uh, He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall, shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Could it not be any clearer? Um, so, Our interpretive key is Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, and it tells us very clearly that the vineyard owner is God. He's the one that planted the seeds. He's the one that started the vineyard. And then once it was ready, he delegated responsibility of it over to someone else. We know also because of our key that the vineyard is Israel that those are the people, and the fruit of the vineyard is supposed to be righteousness. But instead of producing righteousness, it produced the opposite. It produced unrighteousness or unfaithfulness, i.e. the wild grapes. Um, The imagery that is began in Isaiah 5 that Jesus leverages, he also develops. Okay, so here's what he adds to the imagery that's already very familiar for his Jewish listeners. He adds the tenets. So the tenants are the caretakers of the vineyard. They're the religious leaders. They're supposed to help the vineyard be led towards fruitful righteousness. Uh, they're supposed to be led towards and, and, and shaped by their leadership towards faithfulness to God and obedience to his commands. The servants that he sends to uh, the tenants to retrieve the fruit of faithfulness are the servants or, or the prophets, uh, all over the Old Testament. He sends repeated prophets uh, as his mouthpiece. And then finally, we arrive at Jesus' point in pointing to himself. Uh, he says, I have a beloved son uh, in whom I'm going to send. Uh, and this, this clear language points back to Jesus' baptism, uh, when in fact, God himself speaks from high above, and His love descends down upon the sun, taking the shape of a dove. Some of you guys remember this from scripture. It's one of the few places that all three persons of the Trinity show up. It's this beautiful, powerful moment that sticks with Christians all forever because as we are baptized, we're baptized into this same love that is shown upon Jesus. The words that God says over Him and over all of those who have been baptized are so beautiful and simple. Um, They're like a salve for a wound. When applied, it brings great comfort. This is my beloved son. You can hear those words wash over you. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's true for every Christian. It's true for every person who's been baptized that you you are his beloved. And so he leverages that famous language to point directly to himself. And it's the reason why the religious leaders get so upset. They see very clearly, oh, He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the God over Israel and us being unfaithful leaders over it. And who does God send as the salvation of Israel? Of course, Jesus. He's pointing to himself and he's saying that that God is going to remove the religious leaders from Israel so uh, so that they can be destroyed and that his plan can come to fruition. All of this stuff is blatantly clear to them. Um, the power of the religious leaders, it depended on one thing, though. It depended on their ability to gatekeep sacrifices because sacrifices were the way that people came in and kind of re-entered into the love of God. They, they, they purchased these sacrifices. It's kind of why they were there changing money uh, in the court of the Gentiles. And in doing so, they kind of like brought themselves back into righteousness through God's system. Well, Jesus... Uh, what he's saying in the parable is that the tenants are going to be destroyed. And what he means is not quite literally the religious leaders are going to get killed, but the power from which they get all of their authority. They're asking about his authority, and he's saying God's about to take away all of yours. And what ends up happening is by way of this prophetic parable, some 30 years later, the temple is destroyed. This is attested to all throughout history um, that in AD 70, the temple is destroyed stone from stone. It's completely dismantled. Uh, And so it leaves everyone who came for sacrifices in a pretty scary place, but also maybe even in a scarier place for those religious leaders who banked on being able to gatekeep all the sacrifices for the basis of their power. You see, if they could withhold, if they could mitigate God's presence, or if they could withhold your ability to come and worship God and, and, and delegate it kind of based on their terms, they had power over the people. And God, seeing this as an unfit situation, he's like, cool. Well, I'm going to break the system that I instituted that you're leveraging for your power by fulfilling it myself. It's this crazy, super cool parable, and it like it all comes together in this really, really beautiful point. You see, what's interesting uh, is that though uh, the the servants thought they would get the inheritance by the death of the son, uh, is that partially they were right. Um, you see, they're like, we'll kill the son, we'll take his inheritance, and then like the vineyard will be ours they were right in that regard. Like the, the inheritance of the son is only uh, acceptable through his death. Uh, but where they got confused was what the inheritance was. Um, they got confused between the inheritance being the vineyard and the inheritance being about God himself. So Where does this leave us? Because a lot of that was specifically about Israel and like kind of a specific situation going on in that time. And while it does clearly show that like God's plan and His prophecy came to fulfillment, the parable actually reveals something else as well. You see, if you look deeper, the parable is not only about removing the power and kind of the religious system that the leaders are using to gain power and manipulate people. It also reveals God's character in a way that is extremely cool. Um, This uh, this son uh, that is sent, since uh, Jesus points to himself uh, as the son, we kind of come back to that question about who is Jesus and what has he come to do? Well, Jesus is sent on the master's behalf, on his father's behalf. He's sent with that message. He is sent to reveal the father, in other words. And what we see Jesus revealing about the Father is that he reveals that God is a God whose grace is immeasurable. We're going to tease this out in three different ways. You guys have this in your notes, but I'm just going to uh, say them, and then we're going to dive into these notes specifically. Um, first, God's grace is, towards us, is his creative patience. Um, so what does God's grace look like? Uh, You know, God's grace is something that we all love. If you've been a Christian, if you've been been around Christianity for any amount of time, you know that like grace is something we love. We talk about it a lot. And maybe some of you guys have heard the the definition of grace, that it's unmerited favor. And it's so true. It is unmerited favor. But I think if I were to ask a hundred people what grace is, I might get just as many answers. And if I were to ask you more specifically to say, what is unmerited favor? What does that mean? What does that look like? I think many of us, myself at times included, would struggle to give any specificity to that. And so I think if we can look a little bit more deeply and specifically at what God's grace is, we can, uh, we can draw out a little bit of the treasure that is packed into that beautiful Word, that is packed into our beautiful God. So the first one is God's grace as creative patience. The second one is God's grace as tenacious generosity. And the final one is God's grace as forceful hope. Okay, let's do our first one. God's grace as creative patience. Um, The reason why this message is called uh, His Immeasurable Grace partially comes from this point. Um, If you've ever waited, like really waited for something, then you've probably got to the point where your creativity has run out. Now, normally people don't uh, align or overlap creativity and patience, but if you think about it, there's a ton of overlap. Here's how. Um, When you're waiting, and especially waiting for a long amount of time, what questions kind of rise to the surface? Uh, For me, what are they waiting for? Like, what are they waiting to happen so that they can finally do it? Notice I've run out of creativity. Now I can't imagine what they could be waiting for to do what they said they were going to do. Sometimes I even, I I superimpose that on God too. Like, what is he waiting for? I can't imagine. I'm lacking the creativity to come up with an answer to the question, what is he waiting for to do what I think he's promised to do? Or secondly, what do I need to do? Like, I've exhausted my creativity in what I need to do so that I can make happen what I want to happen. What do I need to do? Or finally, how much longer could it be? I've thought about all these different the uh, different amounts of days, different amount of weeks and months, like how much longer could this be? And the creativity has run dry. And as a result, my patience too. Well, there's this beautiful quote uh, by John Owen that, uh, that I wanted to share with you guys tonight. And I think it's, it highlights the problem and the mistake that we all make um, when we superimpose those questions on God. Here's what the quote says. Measuring him by that line of our own imaginations, bringing him down unto our thoughts and our ways is the cause of all our disquietments. Okay, so it's written in a different time, right? A little different language. But what he's getting at is we take our understanding of what a good amount of time is our limited ability to creatively think about what could God really be wrestling with, like what could be happening in the cosmos that is staying his hand. And then we take that limited understanding, limited perspective, and we superimpose it on him. And then because we can't come up with anything, we're like, he must be slow. Like he must be just taking his time or he must be absent. He must not care. And we start to murmur, and that's where this last word comes from, is the source of all of our disquietments. And not even the ones that come through our lips, but the ones that bounce around in our souls. The ones that, that, that cause an irritation inside of us and in our relationship with God, we're like, I, I thought I could trust Him. I, I thought he was coming quickly. I thought he would answer when I, when I prayed in this certain way, when I really meant it, when, he, when I knew he really loved me. I thought he would come through. And we've made the mistake not not of misunderstanding our God, but misunderstanding who he is, what his patience looks like. And if we can get away from that, if we can remove ourselves from that, maybe we can land in a place where we can see our our patience compared to his. And it's it's... It's almost like we shouldn't even use the same word because our patience is not like his. His patience is otherworldly. It should almost have a different word ascribed to it. We see in this, uh, in this parable, his patience spans hundreds of years, dozens of prophets. Um, two different people uh, looked into like how many prophets are sent to Israel. I got two different numbers, 63 to 73 different prophets. If this parable, like we talked about in the beginning, is a pretty literal parable, then we're looking at the God who is effervescently patient, like he sent prophet after prophet after prophet, and not just in sending all of those people, but the span of time that he waited for. We're not just talking hundreds of years, we're talking thousands of years that he waited, And sometimes we get the the sneaking suspicion that God's had enough of us, that I've gone too far this time, that he's thinking, not me thinking about him, he's thinking about me. What do I need to do to get their attention? What do I need to do to change them? What is taking them so long? Why? Because we've taken our perspective of patience and we've superimposed it on him. And now we're not only interrogating him with those questions, but we assume that he's doing the same to us. And my dear brother and sister, be comforted by the reality that it's just not true. It's just not true. If he's willing to wait thousands of years, send dozens of prophets, think about the patience if we can even call it patience. Think about the creativity that he sends to us. He's willing to heal one girl's knee. It's creativity. He's like, this is a message I'll send. This is a, this is a, a prophet by way of miraculous healing. I'll spend some time on that. I'll creatively come up with another way that they can respond. I'll, I'll generate more willingness within myself to wait. That's the kind of pr- creative patience that he alone possesses. And if you, can, if you can just grasp that one element of grace, the comfort and relief that it'll provide you, the guilt that'll be washed right off of you that he didn't put on you, but you put on yourself, or the evil one was telling you these lies, and you're like, yeah, I think you're right. I think God is being impatient with me. And then we look at this parable, and we're like, wait, the God that waited thousands of years? The God that sent dozens of messengers only to be followed by his son? That's his kind of patience. So he's not growing impatient with you. He's patiently waiting for you. And not just when you do bad things, but Ephesians 2.10 says that uh, we are his workmanship created. Wait, I wrote this down. We are his handiwork. (laughs) Forgive me, Lord created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. When did he create them? In advance. Before we were, you know, when it was him and Jesus, and they're like, wouldn't it be cool if, wouldn't it be cool if, like, she went up on stage and testified to something that we did and encouraged a whole body of believers there present and online? Jesus like, yeah, let's do that. Cool. We'll write that down. Like, he's been waiting thousands of years to be like, Yes. That's it. So he's not only patiently waiting when we fail, but he's also eagerly anticipating our victories. How crazy. Like when I, want, when I think about grace and when I, when I want you to think about grace, that's one specific thing that I want you to think about. He is creatively patient. He is creatively patient. Here's the second thing. God's grace as tenacious generosity— or God's grace toward us is His tenacious generosity. You know, it's it's crazy that as um, God sends servants um, at any point, He could have said, "That's it, we're done." Right? Like after the first one, He could have He could have showed up Himself and booted the vineyard uh, tenants. He could have sent authorities to go and boot them. Um, after the second one, you're like that seems like it's kind of on you, bro. Like he, he sent the first one, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. You're like, okay, you're the vineyard owner. You're the God of the universe, omniscient and powerful. And yet you're literally acting like an insane person. Like it's the definition of insanity to do the same thing over and over again. And what? Expect different results. And yet that's what we see God doing. And so Like, why is it that when he experiences resistance or rejection, what's his response? His response is to come closer. His generosity is tenacious in that regard, and it's absolutely overwhelming. But it leaves us with the question, if God is doing that, does it mean he's delusional? Does it mean he's, like, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, or... Is he on to something? And I would argue the latter, that he's on to something, that his kindness is meant to do something towards us. His kindness is meant to do something in us. Now, I don't like to, to pick and choose phrases, but uh, while Paul, in the, in the very beginning of his uh, letter to the church in Rome, is talking a lot about judgment, he gives us, as he's talking about this, he gives us a little bit, bit of insight into the reason for God's kindness the purpose of it, what it's meant to do. Romans 2.4 says this, just a part of it again. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Wow. Um, it's not him being delusional. It's him trying to win your heart. Uh, it's not him uh, you know, doing something that is gonna have no effect. It's, it's him giving you what you truly need, trying to show you what's truly at stake, um, that you don't need, though maybe you want, a sense of control. He's saying it's a false sense of control. Uh, though what you feel like you want is provision on your own terms it's it's a false or fleeting sense of provision if you can win it on your own terms if it's not in his control and then given to you then you're responsible to perform and maintain it and so he's saying through his kindness through his tenacious generosity i'll give you what you need oh I'll control so that you don't have to. And if you can relinquish control to him, the blessed gift that you'll receive in return is true freedom. Why? Because the more you want to control, the tighter your grip gets around your own situation, the more responsibility and burden that you bear to maintain the situation that you fought so hard to create. But if you can relinquish that control, freedom is yours. The ease of life now is yours. And though you will struggle with it, certainly the freedom that he'll bring you back to every time as your grip loosens around your surroundings, loosens around your circumstances, then it's yours to regain every time. That's God's tenacious generosity. The last one here is God's forceful hope. And this is, this is my favorite point. This is one that I've been excited to get to. Now, um, I already talked about like, What was God thinking when he sent the second servant, or the third servant, or quite literally the 60th servant, the 61st servant? Um, And I think it it goes a little bit deeper than him just being tenaciously generous. Um, God's grace is a forceful hope. It's a forceful hope. His hope is not like wishful thinking. Uh, his hope is a strong and persistent belief, a hope that enduringly and perseveringly believes. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, it's so interesting uh, to know that the word believe and the word uh, love actually have a lot of overlap etym- etymologically. While wow, that's a big word. Uh, etym- etymologically, they have a lot of overlap. And you wouldn't normally think that belief and love have a lot of overlap, but consider the word devote. Like you believe in someone or in the connection that you have with them so much, you love them so deeply that you're willing to devote huge chunks of your life, maybe for some of you, the rest of your life together. And as a result, you not only believe, but also that you love. Isn't that beautiful? And so when, it's, when I'm saying that God has this hope and this belief and it's tied together with love, what does it mean? Because if God's hope is this forceful, or God's grace is this forceful hope, it means it, it does something to us. When God believes, or God hopes, or God loves something, it not only drives him to act, but also reshapes reality. Think about, you don't have to be a, you know, a Bible scholar to think back to the way that Christians uh, you know, think that the world began. In the very beginning of our, our, our scriptures, it tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that he spoke things into being, that he believed they were there, and then they came into being, that he believed there was light, and there was, that he believed there was the earth, the land, the mass, And then it separated from the waters. He believed. And then he breathed into Adam. He spoke all these things into existence. Now, when God believes or hopes in something, it's not like us. It's not like, oh, I really hope this happens, but who knows? When God believes or hopes something happens, it just happens. And what we see throughout Scripture, because this reality is true, is that it's always mattered so much more than what you believe is what God believes about you. You see, if God created good works before and anticipated eagerly that you would fulfill them, then it means that he believed that you were going to respond. He believed that you were going to fall in love with him. He believed that you're going to be in that place at that time and saw it through, devoted himself to the degree that it came to fruition. When God believes that something is going to happen, it does. And it, it, it wreaks havoc on the reality that stands against him. Why? Because it can't resist him. It must comply to his belief. He believes it, and it is true. Reality emanates, in other words, from his belief. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.